You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 9th of March 2020 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. Also, all events in cinemas, theatres, pubs, dance schools, arcades, betting shops, bingo halls, clubs, we can no longer afford groups of people in this area. My guests Holly Dagres and Robin Lustig will discuss Italy's lockdown in its bid to restrict the spread of the coronavirus and the day's other news, including the spotlight turning again to Iran's nuclear program as the country continues to enrich uranium in a breach of reimposed restrictions. And is there any way to argue against conspiracy theories? Plus, Canada's push to earn a Security Council seat. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined by Robin Lustig, broadcaster and author and former presenter of Radio 4's The World Tonight, and Holly Dagres, non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council and editor of the Atlantic Council's Iran Source. Let's look first at Italy and the extraordinary measures imposed over the weekend in an attempt to restrict the spread of the coronavirus COVID-19. As many as 16 million people in Lombardy and 14 provinces are now under some variety of quarantine. Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte has promised massive fiscal stimulus in a bid to mitigate the economic damage, which in a country to which millions of people would normally be booking holidays at this time of year will be considerable. Um, Robin, does this strike you as proportionate? It's very difficult for somebody who isn't a public health official to judge whether something is proportionate or not. Um, I know Italy quite well. I lived there for a time. And uh, without wanting to perpetuate stereotypes, Italians are not notoriously good at doing what the government tells them (laughs) to do. And uh, it was, I thought, particularly worrying that this decision of the government to quarantine a huge number of people in the north of the country was leaked ahead of time, which meant that it gave a lot of people a chance to make their escape. Uh, One of the things about northern Italy is that because it's the richest part of the country and it's where all the jobs are, a lot of the people who live there are actually originally from the south. So, of course, what they did as soon as they heard that they were about to be prevented from moving was to get into their cars, jump onto a train and head home. some of them would have taken the coronavirus with them. It's not good. Uh, Holly, it is a a point which has been raised as we've watched this unfold around the world these last few weeks, whether the difference in approach between democracies and autocracies, China and South Korea have been the most obvious compare and contrast. Does either system have an advantage? Do you do better when when you need to impose extreme sanctions? Is it better to have a population who are cooperating or a population who are being coerced. Well, in the case of Iran, so, I mean, I think it's been a big problem because there's a lack of transparency here. Um, the fact that the Iranian government knew that there were people contracting it and that there was a death toll before the February 21st um, parliamentary elections, they still allowed people to go out and vote. And that arguably was in part why it spread. So the Iranian government played a paramount part in allowing this um, virus to be the outbreak that it is inside Iran. But um, to unpackage that a little bit more, now that the virus is out in the open in a country like Iran, you're seeing that 
Um, people are discussing um, ways and means to um, prevent it from spreading. And you're, and like the Italians, Iranians are now have seen this as an opportunity to vacation because the Iranian New Year's coming up on March 20th. So a lot of them have hit hit the north. Um, by the Caspian Sea, where a lot of Iranians actually go and spend their holiday vacations. And now it's becoming a big problem in this province because um, it's the virus is supposedly spreading. Yeah, the crucial thing, Andrew, is that when you do have a public health emergency, it's absolutely crucial that people believe what officials tell them. In a dictatorship, in a country where official information is distrusted with very good reason, people don't automatically believe what they're being told. You need a system like the Chinese system where you have such a form of dictatorship that people have no option but to do what they're told uh, to make it work. And by all accounts, it does seem to have worked in China at some great cost. The problem is that it might never have started in the way that it did had China been a more open society and if doctors had felt more confident in being allowed to sound the alarm at an early stage. Just to follow that up, Robin, is there where democratic governments are concerned, when there is a a big situation, a big thing of any sort, whether it's a health crisis or some other thing, is there a tendency to err on the side of being seen to do too much rather than too little? I think it's a really difficult judgment for any democratic government. They don't want to, quote, spread panic, unquote, nor do they want to be accused of underplaying the seriousness of the crisis. I think the British government has shown how difficult it is. It wants to do the right thing. It wants to do what its scientific and medical advisors tell it it needs to do, but it doesn't want to bring the country to a standstill, and it doesn't want people to do what they've already started doing, alas, which is loot supermarket shelves because they think the world's about to come to an end. Uh, Holly, it is a strange position for governments to find themselves in. Do they find themselves, do you think, making adjustments according to whether or not it's actually scientifically or clinically the right thing to do. They, they have to factor in what publics actually will stand for. I mean, I've been watching this unfold, um, obviously, my home country of Australia, which has made news this week for all sorts of unedifying reasons as, as people fight in supermarket aisles over the last roll of toilet paper. And yet I do wonder how many of those same people were among the crowd of 85,000 people who che- cheerfully turned up at the MCG yesterday to watch the final of the Women's T20 World Cup. Yeah, it's it's a really complicated thing when you when you look at the bigger picture here. You're you're having these situations where people are. Um, I would say just panic buying, um, and then at the other hand, they're going to events. They're going. They're taking the metro. They're they're maybe elbowing the elevator, but then they're <laughs> in these mass places where people gather, and it's kind of counterintuitive. But and then you have governments. Um, I'll give the example of the U.S where um, I imagine they have um, plans in place for a pandemic. I mean, we heck, we have Hollywood movies all, all the time kind of giving us a picture of the hell that would break loose of a contagion or a pandemic was to break. Um, but the bigger question is here is who is in government? So right now we have the Trump administration that has a credibility gap the size of the Atlantic Ocean. And so in some ways we've seen this administration act the way that 
Iran has been acting, where they deny that it's a big deal, that they're censoring the media, that they're not handling it the way they should, because in the United States' case, they're afraid that it's going to hurt the stock market and we have an election coming up. So let's try to not exaggerate the situation on the ground, even though it, it, there's a high possibility that the numbers of people contracting in the United States is far higher. And so we, we're looking at this and we're scratching our heads saying, well, what? where is this going to lead? Does that mean that people rightfully are panic buying? because they're going to be quarantined in some states? Or are they going to not, should we treat it like the flu? Is it is this something that's going to be a permanent thing? Is it going to come and go? As Trump says, when it's spring and summer, it'll be gone. So it, it's really hard to understand where what direction this is going right now and how gov- each government is going to be handling it in its own proportionate state. My bottom line is, is actually a very simple one. I believe what the public health officials say. I don't believe what the politicians say. Holly Dagres and Robin Lustig will be back with more from you both in just a moment. But first, here is Monocle's Daniel Bache with some of the other stories we're following today. Thank you, Andrew. Four men have gone on trial in the Netherlands in the first criminal case over the downing of Malaysia Airlines flight MH17. All 298 people on board the Boeing 777 were killed when it was shot down over Ukraine in 2014. Lawyers say they have proof Russia was responsible. Two Afghan politicians who both claim they won the presidential election have declared themselves leader at rival inauguration ceremonies. Officials say the incumbent Ashraf Ghani narrowly won September's vote, but Abdullah Abdullah alleges the result was rigged in Ghani's favor. And today's Monocle Minute reports that Washington city councillors have backed a new bill that offers employees the chance to trade in subsidized car parking for cash. If ratified, it would allow those who don't drive to work to claim $270 of additional monthly income. For more on this, you can head over to monocle.com minute and subscribe to our Daily Digest. Those are some of the headlines we're following. Now back to you, Andrew. Thanks, Daniel. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller here with Robin Lustig and Holly Dagres. Let's look now at another of the countries most affected by COVID-19, Iran, though not entirely for COVID-19 related reasons. The International Atomic Energy Agency has revealed that Iran's departure from the terms of the nuclear agreement struck in 2015 with a group of concerned foreign powers is accelerating. Iran has undertaken a staggered breach of restrictions ever since US President Donald Trump announced a flounce from the deal in 2018 and reimposed sanctions. Iran now possesses over 1,000 kilograms of uranium, which is five times what the agreement permits. Uh, Holly, what is the Iranian regime doing here? Well, the Islamic Republic wants the United States to return to the Iran nuclear agreement. They want the sanctions removed, and they've said this over and over again. But they know that that's not going to happen between now and November at least, right? And that's why they haven't withdrawn entirely, and that's why it's only aspects of it. That's why the Europeans and the remaining signatories are still holding on to that last bit of hope of, of the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, because they hope that come November, they're going to have a new U.S. president that's likely going to return to the deal and try to make a make all this go away. But I, I think that's a little too optimistic. I mean, I don't want to get into U.S. politics right now. But 
Um, I, I think the the reality is that the Iranians are are slowly moving away. And if you look at the actual agreement itself, Article 26 of the Iran nuclear agreement says that Iran has a right to withdraw from some or all aspects of the Iran nuclear agreement if sanctions are reimposed. And so what essentially happened is that when the U.S. withdrew in May 2018, Iran gave the remaining signatories a good year to actually provide them with sanctions relief. And it was in May of 2019 that Iran decided to withdraw because they had given the Europeans a good good amount of time. And on top of that, the United States has decided to impose an oil embargo on the country, thereby making it harder for them to sell oil and trade and hurts, which arguably would hurt Iran's economy. So now they've been withdrawing. Um, They've withdrawn from aspects or breached the agreement five times already, but they're still parts or elements of this agreement that's alive. And it's really um, unfortunate, but I think they're really holding on to that hope of November. Uh, Robin, is there then an amount of theatre in Iran's behaviour? They they know, or hopefully they understand what the actual limits are beyond which everybody else would just give up on this deal. And they also know, presumably, that if it did look like they were advancing too close to what's known as breakout point, i.e. a point at which they could reasonably make a nuclear weapon, then somebody's going to take action to stop them. They must get that, surely. Yes, I think they do get it. I, th- I think they have behaved... Uh quite impressively, actually, ever, ever since 2018, this very graduated response. What, what, what fascinates and worries me is who actually is making the decisions in Tehran now, because it's been obvious right from the moment when President Trump said he was going to rip up the agreement that that would strengthen the hand of those in Iran who'd always said that the agreement was a bad idea and that it restricted Iran's options. They are now even stronger than they were. And there must be a possibility, I mean, Holly, correct me if I'm wrong, but there must be a possibility that the hardliners will have more decision-making power than was the case a year or two back. You're absolutely correct, and and that's the the problem this has kind of created. Um, They've given the hardliners an opportunity to say that we were right all along. We said never to trust the United States. They just won the parliamentary elections in a majority. We expect in 2021 to have a hardline Iranian president, and somewhere between now and then or thereafter, um, the supreme leader will at some point die. And we expect him to, whoever comes in his place will be, make him look like a moderate. And I think that the Trump administration's maximum pressure policy has played a big role in allowing this to happen. I'm not saying that it wouldn't have happened otherwise, but they've definitely made it seem easier that that this is the way or direction Iran needs to take, which is almost a North Korea-like situation where they, they realize that, well, in the long term, if we isolate ourselves, we're more protected. And if we really want to take it even a step further, if they were to hypothetically pursue a bomb one day, it would give them the clout that North Korea has and they would get the respect that they want from the United States. And I, I think that slowly we may be very well moving in that direction. How strong are the people in Tehran in the power, the decision-making structure who are saying, well, let's at least concentrate on keeping the Europeans on the side? It's it's really hard to say right now. I think um, they're, they're really trying hard to maneuver. And, and I think that the hardliners haven't won because the Iran has not withdrawn from the Iran nuclear agreement. It has not withdrawn from the NPT treaty. So we're, we're in this situation where they're, they're trying to buy time and time is running out. And it really just really depends on November.
Okay, well, let's move along finally on today's news panel to something that isn't quite the COVID-19 outbreak, but is related to it, because while COVID-19 has inflicted a terrific battering on the world stock markets, it has inevitably sparked a bull run in conspiracy theories, not least in Iran, where a variety of grey-bearded sages have taken to state airwaves to inform the public that this is all a Chinese and or American plot, and at the very least, no responsibility of theirs, etc. Not for the first time in Iran and elsewhere, the question raised is. Is there any way to argue against them? Um, These are going to become a bigger factor this year, Robin, not just because of COVID-19, but because of the US election. And we have, of course, a US president who has basically traded in conspiracy theories his entire political career. To the extent that there is, um, as reported in in this morning's Monocle Minute, now actual consideration of whether the Joe Biden-Ukraine conspiracy theory should actually be reasonably considered an electoral liability, as in does it make him unelectable that this unproven theory is circulating about him? Is there a way to argue back against this stuff? If there were a way of doing it, I don't know what it is. I think one of the most depressing things things for me as somebody who's been a journalist for a very long time and and still believes that facts are important is that giving people facts doesn't always... Trump, to use the wrong word, uh, (laughs) giving them conspiracy theories. People believe conspiracy theories if they confirm their worldview, their their view of how the world works. People believe what they want to believe. Exactly so. And you can tell them that it's not true till you are blue in the face, but they won't believe you. You can tell them, as the Washington Post does religiously day after day, that President Trump has told 15,000 lies or whatever the figure is today since the inauguration. It doesn't matter because they don't believe the Washington Post or whoever it is. One of the worst things, in my view, that Mr. Trump has done is to persuade people that they don't have to believe anything. They can choose what to believe and what the evidence shows, what the facts are. If they want to believe that two plus two equals five, then fine. If that's what Mr. Trump says or whoever it might be, go for it. I'm not sure how much money I would... I'm not sure how much money I would personally put on Donald Trump's ability to correctly add two and two. But, But Holly, have we at least discovered, and it's no consolation at all, that there is a universal aspect to conspiracy theories? Because there used to be this idea that they were much more prevalent in the kind of places you were talking about earlier, where the regime is authoritarian, where the regime controls information, where the public assumes the regime is lying. And certainly it was my experience reporting from the Middle East and the Balkans that conspiracy theories were a a particular regional specialty. But we have discovered, have we not, that tens of millions of Americans who presumably have access to all the information they could possibly want would much rather believe this nonsense. And, and, and you're very much right. I mean, it, it just blows my mind. I've seen over the years, not related to U.S. politics, but how many times have I seen people share on Facebook, young people, that McDonald's use human meat in their burgers? And I have to be like, Just well, so we're absolutely clear on this, McDonald's do not use human <laughs> meat in their burgers. That is not an assertion Monocle 24 is presently <laughs> making. And so, I mean, the fact that you can Google it quickly and the first thing comes up is Snopes fact-checking it and people are not using their noggins. They're not using their brains but to look into it. There's now a whole conspiracy theory about who Snopes are really working for as well, though. Oh, I haven't heard that one. You you can take a wild guess. Uh, Okay. (laughs) But, I mean, going back to U.S. conspiracy theories, I mean, the big one that was very problematic and had a serious consequence was Pizzagate. If you remember during the 2016 presidential election, essentially... 
some conspiracy theorists in the U.S. with the helps of Russian bots and fellow conspiracy theorists and the alt-right and Breitbart, everybody you can think possible had played a role. And they said that Hillary Clinton... But let's just remember, this goes back a long way. I mean, all the way back to the assassination of John F. Kennedy and beyond. People have always loved conspiracy theories. Newspapers wouldn't sell if it wasn't for conspiracy theories. This is true. Just a final quick thought on this, Robin, because it's my own vague theory about conspiracy theories. I understand why governments, especially in democratic societies and especially at times like this, have to project a you know, an image that we've got it all under control, don't worry about it, smart people are working on this. It strikes me, or it's always struck me, that no belief in conspiracy theory can survive any conversation with somebody who's actually worked in government uh, at the top level. Is there a way governments can every so often let a bit of the light in on magic and say, look, seriously, we're just as confused as you are, we're doing our best, bear with us? I don't think it would help. I really don't think it would help. If governments say, we're really trying, but we're not quite sure what to do next, somebody will step into that gap, somebody will fill that hole, and that somebody almost certainly will not know what they're doing. Robin Lustig and Holly Dagres, thank you both for joining us. In a moment, we will hear more about Canada's race for a seat at the UN Security Council. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Do stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Finally today, we head to Canada, where the race continues for a seat at the UN Security Council. Today marks the final day of former Canadian Prime Minister Joe Clark's week-long trip to Algeria, Bahrain, Egypt and Qatar. With Justin Trudeau dealing with challenging domestic matters, including strikes related to Canada's energy policy, Clark was enlisted as special envoy to bolster Canada's campaign for one of two temporary seats up for grabs on the UN Security Council this June over Norway or Ireland. But it might be too little too late, according to Dr Besma Momani, a political scientist at the University of Waterloo. Not only has Canada committed fewer resources to the region, but human rights aren't at the top of the list for many of these countries. And Canada is coming in with lofty goals, such as a feminist foreign policy and a human rights-centric agenda. But Canada's reasons for wanting the UN seat aren't all lofty. Diplomats hope more regular contact with China can help smooth over a tough period in bilateral relations. That's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Daniel Bache. Our studio managers were Steph Chungu and Christy Evans. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of Monocle on Culture. Monocle's House View returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. <laughs>